Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Some roads just aren't meant for pedestrians, it seems, especially the most dangerous road in Connecticut. Now you just watch that sidewalk. Oops, disappeared. Where'd it go? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) disappeared, and then it reappears. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll find out why it's so hard to make our streets safer for pedestrians in our car-centric culture. We'll also finish our story about the Housatonic River and how it's a battleground between a big company that polluted the river and the people who live there over how to clean it up. This thing is so contaminated that I'm going to be long gone before the results of the cleanup 50 years from now is going to really be seen. And we'll listen for a New England accent that time forgot. That's what makes life. You work the land and you feed it and... You take care of the land, the land takes care of your cows, and the cows take care of you. That's why I I was brought up. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Earlier this summer, a 75-year-old activist named Ray Rout hiked the length of U.S. Route 1 in Connecticut to prove a point. The road is not safe for pedestrians. Route 1, which is also called the Boston Post Road, was the original horse and buggy path connecting Boston and New York. In Connecticut, it runs for about 120 miles through suburbs and cities and beach towns. In some of the more developed areas, several lanes of traffic move very fast, with lots of strip malls and congestion. According to some preliminary data collected by the University of Connecticut and the Department of Transportation, there were 74 accidents involving pedestrians from January 2015 until now. That means more than one pedestrian was hit for every two miles of road, although most of the accidents happened in the western part of the state. The age group that was most affected were Ray Routes' peers, people aged 66 and up. Reporter Cassandra Bassler of WSHU followed Route on his journey and met some others who walk Route 1 as part of their daily commutes. Cassandra, welcome to Next. Thank you. What got you interested in the story? Well, I had heard that this guy, Ray Route, wanted to walk the entire length of Boston Post Road, and that honestly shocked me because I've driven on Boston Post Road to go grocery shopping in places like Milford and Orange. And I'm, as a driver, a little terrified of some of the traffic. You know, cars are darting out of parking lots. It's about six lanes wide. Uh, And I just couldn't imagine trying to walk along that road because there are no sidewalks. And why are there no sidewalks? Where'd they go? Well, newer towns that sprouted up along US-1 just never really built them. When I met Ray Rout before he began his walking tour of the Post Road, um, he took me for a drive along the road from Fairfield through Weston. Now, Fairfield has a ton more sidewalks than places like Milford, where I go grocery shopping. But Ray pointed something interesting out to me along the Boston Post Road. Now, you just watch that sidewalk. Oops. Disappeared. Where'd it go? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> disappeared. And then it reappears. Uh, now, I don't really quite understand sidewalks. Uh, people that own the property don't want to put in sidewalks. 
is expensive for one thing. But you also have, if you have a sidewalk, you have to keep it shoveled. And they don't want to shovel it free of snow. And I kind of can understand that too. The tragedy is in the wintertime, there's no sidewalk. They don't clear the sidewalks that exist. And so people that are going there, they've got to catch a bus to Bridgeport, say. They're walking on the pavement with their back to traffic. And it's just, I, I can't believe that we make conditions such as that that are so dangerous. But he often walks five miles a day just for his health. And he told me that um, when he started biking and walking in Connecticut when he moved out here about 30 years ago, he really found that it was a challenge. He didn't feel safe on the roads near his house. And he told me about this one time when he nearly bit the dust riding his bicycle over a storm drain on a Connecticut road. Once riding down the street in front of my house, I saw one of those storm drains. And those storm drains, if you've ridden a bicycle at all, particularly a road bicycle, you see a storm drain, you swerve around it because you don't want to ride over it. So I, I started thinking about that. I talked to the Department of Transportation once, and the chap that I talked to, uh, an engineer there, a well-known fellow, a nice guy, uh, said, you know, we would would like to build out a transportation systems and an economy so that everybody could own a car and no one would have to ride a bicycle. I'm thinking, well, he missed that point, didn't he? So we know that when the post road was turned into Highway 1 back in the 1930s, it was designed for cars, but we also need to have them available for people to get there by foot. What, what do we do about it? Well, to find out, I took my recording kit out to the Boston Post Road in Milford, and I was looking for people who have to walk along this road. I finally met this young man. He was wearing a nice dress shirt and a backpack, and he's trudging along in the mud. And I pulled over into an empty parking lot to catch up with him, and he introduced himself to me. I'm Jalen McKenzie from Bridgeport, Connecticut. And Jalen, we're standing where the sidewalk ends in Milford here. Um, where are you headed? I'm going to um, Joseph A. Bank, the clothing store. Mm -hmm. What did it take for you to get here? Did you take the bus? I did. I took the, um, uh, the Milford CL to get up to the Milford Mall, yes. And how long did that take you? It took about an hour from Bridgeport because that's a stop in Stratford, and then it leaves again to come up here, so about an hour in total. How long have you been walking on the sidewalk here? Um, about 15 minutes. I stopped by the bank earlier today, but yeah, about 15 minutes. And it's not the nicest conditions here. It's like raining outside. We're getting a little damp. Yeah, it is. Unfortunately, I, I didn't even know it was going to rain today. I would have dressed better for the for the weather. <laughs> um, well, I don't mean to keep you out here too long, but so do you often have to come up here on the bus and walk through basically the grass to get to the store? Well, I do. I work actually at the store, um, so I normally do have to walk the same path every day to get to my job. I do. You do? Okay. And how far from where we're standing is the store? Um, it's about another 10 minutes from here. Okay, do you mind if I walk with you? All the way there? Yeah. Sure, you can. Okay, I just want to see what it's like. So you work at this store, and how many days a week do you have to travel up here? Um, well, five to six days a week. And you say it takes an hour one way on the bus, and then you walk? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, it is, yeah. Are you annoyed that it takes so long? Not really, I mean, I've been walking all my life, so something I'm really used to, you know, so it doesn't really have that much of a bother towards me. Kind of normal, you know. So up ahead here, it looks like the sidewalk ends, and then we walk through a couple patches of grass and a parking lot, and then the sidewalk picks up again yeah. a couple yards down the way. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's unusual, but, I mean, I guess this is 
they, 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 they didn't want to finish the sidewalk, I guess. <laughs> Doesn't it make you a little bit upset that you have to walk through different types of, you know, mud and stuff on the way to work? I mean, a little bit, yeah, because then I got to, like, kind of maneuver into the street a little bit to get around the grass, and especially when it's raining, it doesn't make it much better either. Is it sometimes scary when you have, you know, like, eight lanes of traffic turning every which way? A little bit, yeah, because you never know which car is coming which way, and some cars are coming out of places, going into places. You always got to look out for a bunch of stuff. More people get hit by cars on the post road than in any other road in the state. It, had you heard about that? What, what do you think about that? I have, yeah, and that is a concern. I think uh, someone should do something about that. Like they should make more sidewalks here for people to walk on because it is a popular road that people you know, I mean, like to walk on. It's a bunch of activities, restaurants on the side, you know. So I'm here with Cassandra Bessler, the reporter who was walking with Jayla McKenzie. When you took that walk with him, what did you think about the trek that he has? Because clearly there's danger there, and you can hear the cars and the trucks whizzing by you. There's not very much room to walk. He's walking through the grass to a job in which he probably has to show up presentable, and the grass is wet that day. Maybe it's raining. But it also gets to this earlier question that the pedestrian advocate Ray Rout was was talking about, which is, do we have a society here that has built roadways that are friendly to everyone, no matter how they decide to get around? I mean, not everyone has a car or wants to use a car. And it looks like Jalen's commute every day is one in which he can't use a car, but it's not built for him to get to his job at all. So Jalen is commuting from Bridgeport, which by car would probably take 25 to 30 minutes, depending on traffic. Like you said, he has to take the bus and then walk 15 to 20 minutes. And it seems like, based on what Ray was saying about the mindset of the Department of Transportation, the theory in the 90s was that everybody should be able to afford to have a car. We now know that the new economic reality in Connecticut is not one that everyone can afford this lifestyle. Um, And so it does seem somewhat exclusive to only have roadways built to move cars. You've been covering transportation for some time. And what are some of your takeaways in reporting the story about pedestrian safety for you? For me, it's a reminder that as somebody who drives a car, I really need to be more aware of the pedestrians on the road. At the same time, everybody is talking about how pedestrians and cyclists need to be educated about the rules of the road, too. I agree with that. Um, But what I've learned from walking along the post road through many different towns in Connecticut working on this story is that the infrastructure does matter. The design of the street does matter because a physical Um, space that a driver can see that a pedestrian is expected to walk on alerts the driver to pay more attention to those people. And it also gives people a safe space to be. There are so many stretches of the post road where the shoulder disappears. There's maybe an embankment where you're forced to walk on a steep incline on the hill. And if that was snow covered or slick with rain, you have the chance of somebody tumbling into the street and having an accident. And that's just something that it seems like a violation of your right to be on the road. We asked Tom Maziars, chief of policy and planning at the State Department of Transportation, what is the deal with Route 1? Is anything being done to make the post road and others like it safer for pedestrians? We know there are problems on Route 1. We've dealt with them in the last five, six, seven years at different locations. And we continue to try to sort of do the, what I would call, reactive retrofitting of of problem areas. We're also, as an agency, trying to shift the way we approach this. And we're taking a much more proactive stance uh, on dealing with pedestrian issues. We've got 40 to 50 years of highway-centric, highway building, and development 
patterns uh, in all of our communities. And the combined highway development patterns and highway design methods have given us what we have today, which is oftentimes four-lane highways without sidewalks and without adequate crossing provisions for uh, pedestrians. When you say you've identified certain problems, give me just a short list of what those problems are. I mean, what are the things you you are seeing that you're trying to be proactive about? Well, for instance, uh, and I'll use Route 1 as an example, uh, there were problems out in the Westport area, I think, in one of the ice cream shops where there were a couple of uh, serious pedestrian accidents, I think even fatalities, in a short period of time, a matter of a couple of years. The problem was, and this is, you know, illustrative, I think, of some of the problems we have on other state highways. No sidewalks there. So people who were leaving the ice cream shop and parked across the street were crossing mid-block because to get to the signalized intersection, they had to essentially either walk in the road or walk on an embankment. In 2013, we went in, we built a sidewalk, brought it all the way down to the, the signalized intersection, redid the traffic signals, provided a new crossing at that location, well-marked pedestrian crossing, and changed the timing of that signal. So instead of being what we would call concurrent green, in which the pedestrian has to be aware that they, they cross the street when the side street is moving, luckily at this point, I think it's been three years, we haven't had another incident out there. In a more general sense, I think what the department has done We've changed our policy, all right? We've gone and we've adopted a complete streets policy, which basically says instead of just putting sidewalks in as an afterthought maybe or not even putting them in as part of the design of a new roadway or the reconstruction of a roadway, now the design engineers have to automatically uh, follow the complete streets policy, which means they do a thorough evaluation of the pedestrian and bicycle facilities in the area and the needs, the, the, the demand for those kind of facilities. And they basically have to include those accommodations for bicyclists and pedestrians. If they do not, they have to provide the justification for that. Well, one of the things, though, that, that takes so long is that often these changes aren't made until, made until there needs to be a change to an intersection or a change to a roadway. So what happens in the interim? I mean, if a, if a road doesn't have to be paved for quite some time, meaning that there doesn't have to be a new design plan for sidewalks and bike paths, um, what do you do in the interim? And, and how do individual towns find the funding to, to do this? Well, we've created uh, through the Let's Go CT program that was initiated by the governor and approved by the legislature, uh, a new program that'll provide $10 million a year, and that'll be primarily for the local communities. The other thing we're doing as part of that same program. We took about a million dollars and we're dedicating it to what we call roadway safety audits. We got 80 towns sending back applications to participate they select a location in town where they feel they have a problem. We come in, form a work group of local officials because that local knowledge is critical to the process that we go through. We perform a safety audit, identify what all the problems are, what the needs are, and come up with a plan for how that should be addressed. So I interviewed a man in Milford who I met who was walking 
outside of the mall there, and he doesn't own a car. He takes the bus from Bridgeport an hour to work at the Joseph A. Banks clothing store, and he has to walk through patches of grass because the sidewalk disappears and reappears, and he has one pedestrian crosswalk on his route to work from the bus stop. So what would you say to him about this issue? That That's a common issue. You can walk, I mean, you can drive almost any state highway, and you can look for what we call goat paths, the worn path on the side of the road. That's an indication that there's a demand out there that we're not meeting. I think we are, in, in some ways, or the towns are, in, in many cases, being very proactive about trying to address that. Town of Windsor Locks, uh, that's in the case of Route 75 up near the airport, four-lane road, uh, Similar problems over the last 10 years with improved bus service up there. We've gotten a lot more people who are using the bus to get to work. You drop them off on one side of the street, uh, and then on the return trip, they have to get to the other side. How do you get them safely across the street, uh, especially if you don't have sidewalks? The town is beginning to build some sidewalks out there. They're also, and this is key, you need to, as part of the development process and the regulatory process, require the new developments or change of use to include sidewalks as part of the approval of that new site plan. It's something that wasn't required by the communities 10, 20, 30 years ago, but now more and more communities are are doing it. I'm just going to ask you one last question, Tom. In just a minute, we're going to talk with someone from the city of Boston. They've instituted uh, a Vision Zero program. It's actually a, a national, really an international program that looks very specifically at safety as the first concern that you have in any sort of transportation infrastructure rebuild and in the way that you think about how you map out your city. What Boston's essentially saying is we don't want to have any uh, pedestrian fatalities, bicyclist fatalities, or even any motorist fatalities. In many ways, it fits a bit with what you're talking about around complete streets, but it seems to come at it from a different angle. Is there something to a, a plan like that? Vision Zero is something that is being promoted through the United States Department of Transportation. So it's something every state DOT is aware of. It is a very high goal to try to achieve, but it certainly starts to drive a lot of your other policy. And it would also, I would say, reinforce the sort of cultural change that we're, we're seeing both within the state DOT and with what we hope to see in the community of of drivers throughout the state of Connecticut. Right now, driver awareness of pedestrians is is relatively low, and that's what we've got to change. You can go to other parts of the the country, and there's much more awareness of pedestrians and cyclists. You drive out to Cape Cod, where the cycling and the bike paths are such a big thing, uh, you'll see drivers stopping for anyone who gets near the edge of the sidewalk or near the edge of the trail. That's not the case in Connecticut right now, but we hope to change it. Yeah, in Massachusetts, when you get to those walkways, people do stop. We don't do it here. Yeah, like I said, it's a culture change. It's not just state DOT. It's everyone in the state needs to increase their awareness and change uh, the way they drive, essentially. Tom Maziers, thanks for joining us. All right. Thanks, John. And thanks to reporter Cassandra Basler. Another part of that Vision Zero culture change is about the speed limit. Mats Bellin is project manager at the Vision Zero Academy, part of the Swedish Transport Administration. He says that a pedestrian hit by a car going 50 kilometers an hour, that's about 30 miles an hour, gets killed 80% of the time. But if you get hit 
in less than 30 kilometers, the risk is less than 10%. So therefore, when we're talking about speed limits in urban area, we, we need to make sure that the speed is not higher than 30 kilometers. And Boston is getting closer to this goal. Here's the city's transportation commissioner, Gina Fiendaka. The current speed limit is 30 miles per hour, and through this joint effort, the governor just signed last week legislation lowering the speed limit in the city of Boston, and municipalities can opt into this to 25 miles per hour, and uh, allowing municipalities to create safety zones at 20 miles per hour. And that's pretty close to the Vision Zero goal. Of course, Ray Rout and other walkers will tell you not everyone goes the speed limit. To see a video of Ray's walk along Route 1, go to nextnewengland.org. Coming up, the battle over how to clean up chemicals in the Housatonic River. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Last week on the show, we heard about General Electric's legacy in the town of Pittsfield, Massachusetts. For about 80 years, the company operated a huge transformer plant in the Berkshires. It was the biggest employer in the region, and when the jobs left in the 1990s, it left a big hole. As we heard, the residents there have mixed feelings about GE, in large part because of the toxic chemicals they left in the Housatonic River. Here's Tim Gray. He's executive director of the Housatonic River Initiative. GE made billions in the transformer business. And we're saying, you know what, you owe it to us. Instead of packing the station wagon, which they've done, it's kind of like you owe it to us to come back to Berkshire County and clean this stuff up. That stuff he's talking about is PCBs, or polychlorinated biphenyls. They were widely used in manufacturing for decades, but then they were banned in 1979 as a probable human carcinogen. As WBUR's Meghna Chakrabarty from Radio Boston reports, there's a variety of deeply held opinions and disputes about how to clean up the mess. For example, GE estimates that there could be up to 70,000 pounds of PCBs left in the Housatonic River today. The EPA puts the number at some 600,000 pounds. Back in 1998, GE and federal, multi-state, and local governments reached a consent decree that laid the groundwork for cleanup plans. A couple of years later, the EPA and GE rehabilitated a two-mile stretch of the Housatonic in downtown Pittsfield. Now, the focus is on the rest of the river, as it's called, a more than 10-mile stretch of the Housatonic, and there is a great deal of disagreement on how to clean it. We'll start with the group stuck in the middle, the Environmental Protection Agency. We've heard, you know, GE saying, well, you know, you're, you're taking too much out, you're going to hurt the river. Other people saying, you're not taking enough out, you're going to hurt the river and all the critters. So, you know, we're, we're someplace in the middle and we're hearing criticism from both sides, but that's not a surprise. And, you know. <laughs> Jim Murphy is the EPA's head of community involvement for the Housatonic. We're with him and Dean Taliaferro at Uncomet Brook, which flows directly into the Housatonic River. Talia Ferro has been the EPA's project manager for the Housatonic cleanup for 15 years. So what exactly are we seeing Right then? now you're seeing a dried out brook. Dry, just a dried out brook. Right, typically this would be filled with water or a flowing brook. And when, when the restoration's done, there'll be more um, clean soil put back in. 
The Uncomet Brook cleanup is typical of these kinds of restorations. The water is diverted, contaminated soil is dredged out, and clean soil is put back in. Pretty straightforward, in theory. That is what was done in central Pittsfield. GE says it spent more than $500 million on that part of the project, but the company objects to the EPA's new plans for the rest of the Housatonic River. Earlier at the EPA's field offices, Jim Murphy described those plans to us. Our proposal is to have the uh, the waste, uh, whatever comes out of the river and the, and the floodplain, we're estimating it, it's close to a million cubic yards, be shipped out of state. And therein lies the problem for GE. It would take about 100,000 dump trucks to move all that contaminated sediment out of Massachusetts in compliance with state regulations. The EPA estimates it would cost $300 million just to do that, bringing the total cost of restoration to more than $600 million. GE objects to the size and scope of the EPA's plan, and in a January 2016 letter to the EPA, GE argued that it should be exempt from state hazardous waste regulations. It called the EPA's plan, quote, arbitrary and capricious. In a March letter, GE wrote that, quote, EPA also concedes that out-of-state disposal of contaminated sediments has no other benefit than placating local opponents. The EPA still has to make a final decision, and the dispute could ultimately end up in federal court. However, back in April, GE CEO Jeffrey Immelt told WBUR he's optimistic. Oh, gosh, look, we're just completing maybe the largest dredging project in the history of mankind on the Hudson River. So my suspicion is, is that we'll be able to come up with a good solution with the state of Massachusetts. We're very knowledgeable about how this should be done. Immelt's referring to the 50-year, $1 billion PCB decontamination of the Hudson River. So back at the Uncomet Brook site, I asked the EPA's Jim Murphy about what Immelt said, specifically that GE knows how PCB cleanups should be done. (laughs) Well, the Hudson and the Housatonic are two very different rivers, and uh, I'll just leave it at that. Did I touch a nerve there on accident? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I... That's what he said, right? Right. Well, they, they, uh, they, they did the work on the Hudson according to the EPA plan, so that's all we're asking them to do again. We have a lot of experience, too, <clears throat> and uh, we think we're the experts. So part of this story is, yes, a battle between experts. We left the Uncomet Brook site to meet with another expert at a part of the Housatonic River that could be dredged under the EPA's plan. Head southwest on Merrill Road toward Large Street. My name is Rob Brooks. I'm a professor of geography and ecology at the Pennsylvania State University. And I've been visiting this area uh, for research uh, for nearly 40 years. We walk through wetlands and along the banks of the Housatonic. Brooks points out migratory birds, threatened amphibians, evidence of beavers in the area. And he says all of this could be destroyed by the EPA's plan. It would be devastating. And this whole section is proposed to have one to two feet of the river bottom completely removed. That means they have to basically turn it into a construction site, put up a wall, a waterproof wall, work on one side, do the work there, then go to the other side. So imagine that kind of construction going on here. So every place you see right here would be gone. 
But could the Housatonic recover from the cleanup? 25, 50, 100 years from now, could the river return to its current state of wilderness, I ask him. Because that's part of the calculus here, isn't it? Short-term disruption in exchange for a river that's clean and healthy in the long run. Robert Brooks shakes his head. Our own experience with rivers that have been restored and monitoring those is that they don't come back to this kind of condition. And that's why he's opposed to the EPA plan of a wholesale cleanup of the Housatonic. In fact, Brooks advised GE on an alternate plan, targeted surgical cleanups where PCB contamination is highest. Then when I see EPA's remediation plan, it's like a giant sledgehammer that's just going to pound the system and it's going to pound it for a long, long time. And that, that hurts. Robert Brooks has been coming to the Housatonic for 40 years, and he's done extensive research on the river. But we should note that some of that research was funded by GE. In fact, in the process of reporting this story, we asked GE several times if we could speak with a member of its corporate leadership team. They instead connected us with Professor Brooks and brought him up from Pennsylvania to meet us. A GE public relations manager accompanied Brooks as we talked. Um, one, just one last question. You mentioned earlier that you had done some uh, some work with some other researchers uh, for GE, and we are actually here with a representative of GE's PR department. Are you a paid consultant for GE? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm an expert, like an expert witness or uh, expert to give uh, independent assessment, and even back to the original Kingfisher studies we did in the early 2000s. Um, you know, I'm here to give my scientific opinion, and they in no way influence that. We turn to walk back to the cars, but before we depart, Robert Brooks adds one more thought. I think it's a very small risk to give up what you have and the pleasure of having this in your backyard. It's a real treasure for the community of Pittsfield and surrounding places, and I wouldn't want to let it go. I'd fight hard to save it. That's exactly what many people who live along the river say they're doing. They're fighting for the Housatonic but they've got very different views on what saving it actually means. Yeah, um, don't destroy the river to clean it. It's all these people that have gotten bought in by GE to say that same bottom line is leave the river alone. On one end of the spectrum are people like Tim Gray, head of the Housatonic River Initiative. He wants the most comprehensive cleanup possible. On the other end, residents like Jeffrey Cook. The EPA seems to think can somehow be saved while they rip all this stuff up. But those of us who look at it every day and enjoy recreating in that area have no such confidence that that they will do it. Cook is a member of a group of business leaders that provided input for the original 1998 consent decree. He also lives along the same stretch of the Housatonic we visited. I'm not carrying a, a bucket for GE at all and wouldn't. There's a very, very legitimate position among the folks living in ground zero, is what I call it, and there's a a lot more to what EPA passes off as the gospel that people should be looking hard at before we spend $600 million or more dollars destroying the wetlands, the floodplains, and the river in that area of the city of Pittsfield and the town of Lenox. 
The Housatonic River flows through Pittsfield and into Lenox, draining into Woods Pond. That's where we made our final stop and met Tim Gray. You heard him a little bit earlier. He's with the Housatonic River Initiative. And when we met Gray, PCBs were already the topic of conversation with a couple of local dog walkers. You know, does it make sense? Let's dig them out of the river and let's dump them on the side of the river. You know? It is crazy. It's just, it's... We stood on a bridge that overlooks Woods Pond, and on the surface... It's beautiful. So what we see is um, October Mountain State Forest. If you hop out in a canoe and go north, you'll feel like you're canoeing through Montana because it's an absolutely wonderful place. Bald eagles fly through here, osprey, herons, you name it, are in this section of the river, and they're all eating fish, which are highly contaminated. And this pond here is one of the more contaminated ponds in the country. How, How contaminated is it? It's very contaminated. EPA says concentrations of PCBs found in wildlife at Woods Pond is up to 100 times higher than what's considered a safe level. The pond acts like a catch basin for the PCBs, and more than half of the PCBs go over a dam and continue downstream 140 miles along the river. GE's preferred solution is to dredge the pond and deposit the contaminated sediments in a nearby landfill. The EPA is pushing to truck the soil out of state. Tim Gray opposes GE's plan, but he also takes issue with the EPA. He wants them to dredge even more of the sediments upstream from Woods Pond. But like so many of the people we talked to for this series, Tim Gray has been fighting this battle for decades. And with that long experience comes a certain kind of perspective. Well, it's better than doing nothing, okay? It is better than doing nothing, but we're still mystified why we have to leave all these PCBs in the river, you know, when we study the river 30 years from now, will we really be clean? We're we're very worried about that. And, And so we say to the EPA, have a little more guts and clean it up, you know? But everything's a compromise with corporations. To us, that's the biggest takeaway from our exploration of GE's legacy in Western Massachusetts. The people who must make the biggest compromises are those who have to live with that legacy. Also, there is a lot of disagreement on how to manage the after effects of GE's 80 years in Pittsfield. But folks do agree on at least two things. Something must be done, and why that something matters. You know, this is, for me, it's it's about our grandkids. This thing is so contaminated, I'm going to be long gone before the results of the cleanup 50 years from now is going to really be seen. But the dream is my grandkids could come down and throw a pole in the river and not be afraid of getting a high dose of PCBs. That's WBUR's Meghna Chakrabarty from the program Radio Boston. Their series was produced by Jamie Bologna. Thanks to the entire team there. You can visit them online at radioboston.org. You heard in their story the term the rest of the river. That means a few things, actually. There's the rest of the river that runs from the cleanup site down through the Berkshires to the border of Connecticut and Massachusetts. Then there's the rest of the rest of the river. That winds through western Connecticut all the way down to the town of Derby, where the Housatonic River meets up with the Naugatuck and eventually empties into Long Island Sound. Canoe builder and conservationist Skylar Thompson led a 10-day trek the entire length of the river earlier this year to raise awareness about the Housatonic. He says that he's seen noticeable differences in the ecosystem of the river in recent years. WMPR reporter Ryan Karen King met up with Thompson in Ashley Falls, Massachusetts, 
on the way down to Falls Village, Connecticut. The water is certainly a little cleaner than it used to be. You see, uh, you see birds and fish now that you never saw before, and those are the kinds of uh, animals that that don't inhabit dirty water. In many places, just the river banks are a lot cleaner, which is nice to see. And gradually, we're seeing more and more people on and using the river. But it's still um, a neglected resource, I think. A guy named Chard Powers Smith wrote a book to be part of the Rivers of America series, and he entitled it The Housatonic, Puritan River. And he had this interesting thesis that over the course of the history of this valley, it has been essentially the battleground between two antithetical forces. On the one hand, intellectualism, free thinking, literacy, and on the other hand, the forces of the devil, industrialism, greed. This particular valley was at one point very rich in a very high quality iron ore. And for years, right up until 1923, I think, there were blast furnaces going day and night, palls of great black smoke. Every now and then, a great burst of orange would light up the sky as they open the gates and let the molten iron out into the channels. The rivers have, have had the people's back turned on them, and they've been dumped into, crapped into, and otherwise just plain abused. But people in general, I think, have finally realized that rivers are assets, that we, we really don't want to uh, poison them, and, and they, can be, um, they can be used for good stuff. If you'd like to see a beautiful short video of Ryan's canoe ride with Skylar Thompson, go to nextnewengland.org. Coming up, the elusive and fading Vermont accent. This is next. On our podcast, we want to give a shout out to some other great podcasts at the New England News Collaborative Stations. And there are, quite frankly, a lot of them, including The Radius Project from WNPR. This five-part series explores neighborhoods all around Hartford, Connecticut in an unusual way. The producers identify key landmarks throughout the city, and then they wander around a half-mile radius, finding the people and the stories that are off the beaten path. Residents of the city have said they heard things they never knew about the place they live. Hope you can check it out. It's at radiusproject.org. Now, if you can't get enough of political talk this political season, you've got to check out Rhode Island Public Radio's Political Roundtable podcast. There's probably no place in the country where politics is more interesting than the ocean state. And the conversation between political reporter Ian Donis, poli-sci professor Maureen Moakley, and political analyst Scott McKay is always lively. Trust me, I've been a guest on their show, and it's really hard to keep up. Go to ripr.org and click on their podcast link to subscribe to the Rhode Island Public Radio Political Roundtable podcast. Happy listening. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. When you think about the accent of New England, what comes to mind? Maybe a guy from Southie in Boston, or maybe it's this guy, Doug Damon. We recorded on Shebeg Island, just off of Portland, Maine. One bitterly cold night, Don heard a racket down by the cow barn. 
Don quickly buttoned her coat and went right out the back door towards the barn. But that Yankee accent doesn't stretch across the region. In fact, rural parts of places like Vermont have a unique accent. And like so much regional culture, those accents are fading. The brand new podcast from Vermont Public Radio, Brave Little State, explored what makes the Vermont accent. And co-host Alex Keefe is here to tell us what they found. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks, John, for having me. So your quest for the Vermont accent started with a question from a listener who wanted to know where this accent came from. What sparked her curiosity in the first place? Yeah, our, our question asker for this story is a woman named Erin Creeley. Uh, she lives in St. Albans, which is up in northwestern Vermont. And she moved here several years ago from her native New Hampshire. And she noticed a thing that maybe you've noticed if you've moved to a new place. People sound a little different. And she came across this PSA from the Vermont Agency of Transportation. And it was about uh, snowplows, about winter driving safety. But it kind of piqued her curiosity. And I think you can hear why. Uh, here's a clip from it. So how were the roads this morning? In just two miles, I had seven people off the road. It takes time for that salt to work, and that's what people don't understand. I'd say the safest place to be is behind that snowplow. You need a good set of snow tires? Not all seasons. If our trucks are out there uh, plowing and salting, you need to slow down. It's better to get there late and get there alive. I think it's about time we head back out. This winter, slow down and be safe probably some pretty sound advice about winter driving safety. But the other thing that Aaron, our question asker, heard there was this range of Vermont accents. And this got her curious about why there would be different Vermont accents and where they came from and, and how they're changing. So, so how is the Vermont accent different from the way people talk in, I don't know, say New Hampshire or the rest of New England? Full disclosure to start with, I am a flatlander from the absolute flattest of flatlands. I grew up outside of Chicago, so I do not pretend to be an expert in the nuances of different uh, New England dialects. But we did talk with someone who is. Her name is Dr. Julie Roberts. She's a linguist at the University of Vermont. She's been studying the Vermont accent for decades. She says, for one, you very rarely hear people dropping their R's like they might in other parts of New England. So, you know, the Pakyaka and Harvard Yacht. I can't do it very well, but you know what I'm talking about. That doesn't happen so much in Vermont, though it used to. Um, to get a good idea of what it sounds like, she shared us some tape from a guy named Fred Fletcher. He's a farmer who lives in northwestern Vermont, and he gave us permission to use this tape from an interview that Dr. Roberts did with him about a decade ago. If you could take a listen, I think you can get a pretty good sense of the Vermont accent. We had a good-sized farm, you know, 30 cows, and had two pair of horses, and, you know, had 50 head of cattle total, probably, and I think that's what makes life. You work the land and you feed it and mm -hmm. you take care of the land. The land takes care of your cows and the cows take care of you. Julie Roberts, who interviewed him, said part of the reason he's so special is because hearing him talk is like hearing the way someone might have talked in Vermont, you know, decades ago. And part of that is because rural accents, and Vermont's is a rural accent, thrive on isolation. So here's a guy who worked on a farm in rural Vermont for much of his life. The linguist told us he'd taken one vacation in his life. Um, and that's how rural accents sort of stay alive versus urban accents, which thrive with a bunch of people being crammed together on street corners and things like that. But there was a couple interesting parts about that that I wanted to flag that you might have heard. The the cows, I can't say yeah, exactly the... <laughs> right, but that's that's one trait of the older school Vermont accent, if you will, the long ow sound. Also, there's a long I sound. We heard him say life kind of instead of life. And you hear that with other words. Instead of fight, someone will say fight. Or uh, instead of kite, it would be kite. Um, so those are some of the big 
traits of the the older Vermont accent that are kind of fading. Um, but one of the biggest ones that is still around that I want to point out is this thing called the glottal stop, which uh, you yes. hear. You know the glottal stop. You're familiar with this? <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> and, and the way we hear that, that's a fancy word. Uh, people here might call it uh, dropping their T's. So the state we live in is not Vermont. It's Vermont. And in the winter, to stay warm, you wear mittens instead of mittens. And running down the center of the Green Mountain State are not the Green Mountains, but they would be the Green Mountains. I don't have a glottal stop, so that's just me exaggerating. But we do have some tape from people who do have glottal stops, and they could probably do it a little bit better than I can. She was frightened that something happened to her favorite cow. Frightened that something happened to her favorite cow, Violet. Get a flashlight and a pair of mittens, she said. Get a flashlight and a pair of mittens, a pair of mittens, she said. So the reason I know about the glottal stop, Alex, is that is a defining characteristic of the Connecticut accent. I'm based here in Hartford. I've been living here for almost 25 years. I'm not an expert by any means. But in Connecticut, if you ask somebody to define the Connecticut accent, they'll say the town of New Britain, because they say New Britain, Britain. Or, or they'll say mitten or kitten, which is something that's very definitive here in Connecticut. And I didn't know was part of the Vermont accent. Is it? Is there a reason why it exists in parts of Vermont so strongly still? The thing I learned about studying accents that seems to carry on to many of them is it's hard to tell why certain things happen when you study an accent because accents are unconscious, right? You don't think of having an accent and say, oh, it's time to put on my accent. It's not like a language where you can switch and start to speak it. So when subtle changes happen in accents, according to the linguists to whom I spoke for this story, you don't necessarily know why it happened. What we do know, according to Julie Roberts, the linguist from the University of Vermont, she had studied these old tapes that were recorded in the 30s, which we can play in a little bit here. Um, And she said that in the old school Vermont accent, you know, going on 80 years ago, people didn't have the glottal stop. They weren't dropping their T's. But then she heard some parts of the tape where younger people around the 30s were starting to drop their T's, but it's kind of unclear why. One thing that she hypothesized is that it's easier to say, and human beings tend to do things that are easier for them physically in the long run. I mean, if you if we sit here and say New Britain or New Britain or Vermont or Vermont, it's easier to say it without a T. Your tongue doesn't have to touch the roof of your mouth. So maybe sort of the evolution is to, to speak in a way that's actually easier for us. That was what Julia Roberts told me, but she says the big caveat is you never know exactly why. These are just things that you're thinking about when you're trying to figure out why dialects change. So for your podcast, you tracked down one of the guys that was in this video, this PSA that we heard earlier, the one that kind of fascinated your listener. What did you learn from him? His name is Gerald Kinney. He's a lifelong Vermonter. He was raised by lifelong Vermonters. His family's been here for generations. He lives in, in Randolph, which is in East Central Vermont. Gerald says he's been doing some genealogical research, and he found that his family came to Vermont from the British Isles, Ireland, Scotland, and England, but through like Halifax, Nova Scotia, places like that. And he hypothesized maybe some of what we hear as the current Vermont accent was a remnant of these British accents of yore. Later on, I was digging through some of this tape that these linguists recorded in Vermont back in 1934. And I came across this fascinating piece from a woman named Mrs. Emma Ball. She was, I think, in her 80s when this tape was recorded back in 1934. Uh, Here she is talking about her own lineage. And my grandfather Powers was, they claim, was Irish. They tell me there's Irish about us, and I know there is, and I twisted my tongue. 
one thing that I, I learned in talking to linguists is how you feel about the place where this language came from. Clearly, Mrs. Ball had some connection that she held on to from Ireland or Scotland, and she spoke like this. That was just one way that we saw the sort of Irish-Scotch heritage come into Vermont. But the, the waters were a little muddier in trying to figure out whether it still has an effect on the present-day Vermont accent. So, Alex, what type of Vermonters tend to have the strongest Vermont accents? Well, like most accents all around the country, Julie Roberts told me you tend to find the strongest accents in working class Vermonters, and the accent tends to soften the more educated a person becomes. Interestingly, she also says the accent tends to be stronger in men. This is what she had to say about that. In rural areas where the accents tend to be somewhat stigmatized, um, women tend to use less of um, use them less. And I think probably some of that has to do with women um, tend not to be farmers. They therefore sometimes need to get employment. And once someone need, needs to get employment and move out, especially in service occupations, they tend to lose some of those features. So hold it, because the women were going to work and had to move into town and work next to people who were probably coming from all different parts of Vermont or maybe different states, and the men stayed on the farm and worked the farms. The men kept the accents and the women, it started to fade away? That's exactly right. When it comes to a rural accent, you know, staying on a farm, staying isolated, or staying on this side of the mountains versus that side of the mountains will keep you talking the way you talk. But when you go and mix up with other people, a rural accent tends to fade away because you're breaking down these boundaries. You're talking with other people. I mean, we even hear this today, like if maybe you go home to visit your family for the holidays and you start to kind of slip into the old accent of, of your childhood that you've trained out of yourself so that you can work in radio, it's kind of the same with other accents. You, you, you talk the way that other people around you start to talk. So when you have women who maybe left a farm, they were a farmer's wife, and then went to go work in a place where they're interacting more with other people, the way they talk naturally changes. So what does the future look like for the Vermont accent? It's really, really hard to tell what the future of, of any accent looks like. This was the hardest question to answer for this episode. I talked to a handful of linguists, and they say that because you have an accent unconsciously. You don't think about it like speaking a different language. It's hard to tell what's going to happen. Interestingly, um, one famous study was done on Martha's Vineyard back in the 60s that found people who wanted to resist the gentrification of the island, even young people, talked like old timers on the vineyard, whereas people who maybe saw a future for themselves off the island didn't so much talk like that. So that was fascinating to me because it turns out that the future of accents is very personal. What does, a, what does an individual person or a general generation of people feel about the place where the accent came from. Did you get made fun of as a kid? Do you want to leave this place? You can't wait to get out of this town? Or is this a place where you want to put down roots and stay a long time? All of those things, I'm told by the sociolinguists with whom I spoke for this story, all of that plays into how you decide to talk. Alex Keefe, thanks so much for joining us and best of luck on your new podcast. Thanks for having me, John. We've got a link to Brave Little State, the new podcast from Vermont Public Radio, on our website at nextnewengland.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Jay Holt. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, 
Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Broadcasting Network, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR. 